welcome to yet another edition of the International Intrigue Audio Newsletter. This week, you're unfortunately stuck with me, Helen, because John has lost his voice due to too much fun. The audio newsletter is where we read to you our two main stories so you can multitask and go about your busy days. This week, we have two great stories. The first is on the Pope's diplomacy. What can the Pope and the Vatican teach us about geopolitics? The second one is about Mexico's lawsuit against US gun makers and how they're trying to dam the Iron River in a courtroom. As always, we think they're two great stories. So without further ado, on to the first story. Just as an editor's side note, we generally don't cover super mainstream stories. You can and will read them in lots of other places. But this week, we must mention the distressing news that the Taliban has essentially recaptured Afghanistan. The US and its allies appear to have hugely miscalculated the situation. For now, we hope the evacuations currently underway are successful. And for those who will remain, we hope that things aren't as bad as we all fear. The Pope's Diplomacy Did you know that the Holy See has one of the oldest foreign services in the world? Or that there are 135 ambassadors to the Holy See? And did you know that the Holy See is not, as I believed, the place where Jesus turned water into wine, or where a whale ate Jonah? Or, I don't know, ask someone else, I'm not religious. So for my sake, if no one else's, let's start with some basics. The Holy See. That's the central government of the Catholic Church. It is responsible for governing the entire Catholic Church worldwide, and there are about 1.35 billion Catholics in the world. The Vatican City. That's the sovereign territory of the Holy See. Located in the centre of Rome, the Vatican City became independent from Italy in 1929, largely because without a physical territory and resident population, the Holy See could not be a sovereign entity under international law. The Pope. So currently, that's Pope Francis from Argentina, who was the head of both the Vatican City and the Holy See. Now here's a startup idea. Forget about solar or wind power and find a way to turn guilt into electricity. Just think about how many renewable guilt megawatt hours could be produced from 1.3 billion Catholics each day. And check out our newsletter for a really great graphic of the Mobiles of history. From Ferraris to Mercs to Jeeps and armoured personnel carriers, the Pope has certainly written on some pretty sweet rides. The Holy See's foreign policy. All of the major religions around the world have huge influence in the world of geopolitics, but only the Holy See has a dedicated foreign service. The Holy See has a foreign ministry, aka the section for relations with states, that's based in the Vatican City and embassies, aka apostolic nunciatories, and ambassadors or nuncios in 115 countries. The Holy See's diplomats abroad enjoy the full smorgasbord of diplomatic privileges and immunities like any other nation. According to Britain's former ambassador to the Holy See, Sally Axworthy, there are two key characteristics of the Holy See's diplomatic operations. The first is political neutrality. Because the Holy See's primary goal is pastoral care to 1.3 billion Catholics globally, the Holy See tries, though sometimes fails, to remain politically neutral. 
It rarely takes official political positions or expels diplomats due to disputes with foreign countries. The Holy See prefers instead to play the role of mediator while taking a long-term view. For example, the Pope played a crucial behind-the-scenes role in the normalisation of US-Cuba relations in 2014. 2. Top-down soft power Where traditional foreign services both advise government ministers and implement the decisions of those ministers via diplomacy, economic measures or even military threats, the Holy See's power comes almost solely through the words of the Pope. Therefore, the Pope's foreign service exists primarily to advise him on what to say via papal proclamations, or Twitter, where he has 19 million followers. A great example of how the Pope exercises his soft power is a Fratelli Tutti, published last October. And no, the Fratelli Tutti is not a delicious new Pope-endorsed sorbet flavour, but rather a very thorough statement, known as an encyclical, of the Pope's foreign policy positions. Disappointing. I know. The Holy See's Big Foreign Policy Challenges It's time to address the elephant in the room. Historic child abuse. For all the lovely chat about peace and love in the Fratelli Tutti, the Holy See has also regularly used its diplomatic privileges to protect nuncios from testifying about historic child abuse allegations. Many see that as a misuse of diplomatic immunity, not to mention immoral. Each time the Holy See uses its power to thwart investigations into historic abuse, the Pope's soft power is further diminished. Encouragingly, Pope Francis has shown a willingness to change course. In 2019, the Holy See waived diplomatic immunity for the nuncio to France, Archbishop Luigi Ventura, who is facing allegations of sexual abuse. And in the newsletter, you'll see a palate cleanser of a meme depicting Pope Francis holding up Simba. Now, that meme apparently offended Catholics, to which the Pope has responded, it is so sad to see consecrated men and women who have no sense of humour. Communism. For much of the 20th century, the Holy See was overtly anti-communist. In 1949, Pope Pius XII was so worried that there would be no Western diplomatic opposition to the staunchly anti-religion Soviet Union that he issued the decree against communism, which excommunicated any Catholics who identified as communist. But the Pope did not scare Stalin and his Red Army. Joseph Stalin, in responding to Winston Churchill in 1943, said, The Pope? How many divisions has he? The Holy See is more deft in its diplomacy these days, generally choosing not to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. For example, in the Cuba case before. Which brings us to the Holy See's biggest contemporary challenge, China. No, China is not a real communist country. Don't agree? Send your complaints to Xi Jinping at imasecretcapitalist.cn. That notwithstanding... The Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, abhors any institution that has the power to organise people en masse. Pretty proud of that one. Currently, China's 12 million or so Catholics must choose to follow an official CCP-managed branch of the Catholic Church or to follow an illicit underground church loyal to the Holy See. During John's time in China, the CCP undertook a campaign to knock down so-called illegal churches and arrest priests. Euphemistically known as being invited for tea, hundreds of priests were arrested, interrogated, and told to stop their work or else. 
Late last year, the Holy See extended a controversial 2018 deal with Beijing that allows the CCP to select Catholic bishops, effectively bringing the Catholic Church in China under CCP control. Other challenges. Just some of many include liberation theology in Latin America, fighting against populist politics in Italy, and a conservative backlash against Pope Francis from within the Church, led by American Cardinal Raymond Burke. An interesting model for the future. Historians suggest that by a practice of mostly avoiding alignment with political parties, the Catholic Church has been able to focus on its long-term goals and ensure its continued success. And yet, as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report last week made clear, most national governments continue to prioritise short-term political considerations over long-term collective action on problems. So, in a globalised world where people increasingly have more in common with someone on the other side of the world than the other side of the road, I wonder whether the Holy See's diplomatic model could be successfully adopted by other non-religious interest groups. Why couldn't the global church of climate change or poverty or any other global problem advocate for its millions of so-called followers worldwide through its own foreign policy and diplomatic network? Rich donors could help establish the initial bureaucracy and scientists and activists could focus on spreading the good word that we probably need to stop boiling the planet. It's certainly not a perfect solution, but it's clearly something that needs to change. And if they could do that without living in opulent palaces or dressing like flamboyant parrots, then so much the better. Mexico versus gun makers. If you're a Mexican civilian looking to buy yourself a gun, there's only one place in all of Mexico you can go. The store, ominously named the Directorate of Arms and Munition Sales, is located inside a heavily guarded fortress-like military base on the outskirts of Mexico City. The store sells about an average of 38 firearms per day to Mexican civilians. Now, compare that number to the 2 million guns sold in the US in the month of January 2021 alone. Yes, you heard that right. That's 64,516 guns sold per day, or, if you prefer, 2,688 per hour, or 49 guns sold per minute. Now, to be fair, that figure is 80% higher than last January, but it's still only the third highest American monthly total ever. Okay, back to Mexico. The Iron River. Given Mexico's tightly regulated gun market in place since 1971, and the leading way I constructed the introduction before, I'll bet you can guess why Mexico has been dealing with record levels of gun violence in recent years. If you said, well, according to the Mexican government, the answer is that there's an increasing amount of military-style guns, usually AK-15s or 47s, being smuggled across the border from the US, that's a bingo. If you also use a law enforcement slang for this illegal flow of arms, the Iron River, then that's a double bingo. In fact, an estimated 2 million firearms have been smuggled into Mexico from the US over the last decade. During that same period, there have been approximately 170,000 gun-related murders in Mexico. 
Now, I'll let you formulate your own hypothesis as to why gun runners crossing the Rio Grande southward into Mexico with sacks full of Walmart's finest war machinery don't get nearly the media coverage as the flow of drugs and people going the other way. But perhaps the Mexicans should pay for that border wall after all. So what is Mexico going to do about the Iron River? Glad you asked. The Mexican government has decided to sue several high-profile US gun manufacturers, such as Colt and Glock, in an attempt to stem the tide of guns and secure a whopping $10 billion in damages. A hefty sum, perhaps, but the Mexican foreign ministry argues that the cost of a human life is invaluable. At the very least, Mexico hopes to get the US government to pay attention and tighten lax US gun regulations or to negotiate a bilateral treaty with Mexico aimed at reducing arms smuggling. The legal brief. This lawsuit is actually a pretty big deal. It represents the first time a foreign government has tried to sue US gun companies in the US. Mexico has brought the lawsuit in Massachusetts, a historically puritanical state where even happy hour is illegal. The Mexican case follows the precedent set by families of the Sandy Hook shootings, who sued gunmaker Remington for its role in marketing weapons via product placement in violent video games. Remington last month offered $33 million to settle out of court. Now, allow me to get my lawyer on and make each side's case for them. Arguing for Mexico. Your Honour. It's obvious as an open bathrobe that American gun makers are complicit in facilitating arms sales to criminal groups in Mexico. They deliberately market their products to suit their preference of drug cartels. Clearly, US gun companies have failed to responsibly restrict or even monitor arms sales. In arguing for the gun companies. <clears throat> Do we really need to say it again? Guns don't kill people, and you know the rest. As long as we're complying with US and Mexican laws, it's really not our fault where the guns end up. In fact, we've got US laws that specifically protect us from being held liable for crimes committed with our guns, under the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act. Unsurprisingly, US gun lobbies have been quick to call the Mexican case baseless. They instead blame, and not unreasonably, the Mexican government's complicity in rampant crime and corruption as the reason for the rise in illegal trade in arms. The gun lobbies claim there is a substantial body of evidence of dodgy arms sales on the black market by Mexican enforcement authorities who are legally permitted to buy arms. Now here's an amusing thought. Wouldn't it be great if Judge Judy could judge cases like this? Like she could just tell gun makers to take their heads out of their asses and stop producing military weapons for civilians, and also tell the Mexican government to quit the corruption crap, and everyone could be done in time for the early bird dinner special at the Del Boca Vista Golf Club. Alas. Zoom out. The chances of a win for the Mexican government are slim, meaning that this lawsuit is much more of a political move to engage the US government than an attempt to empty the pockets of US gun companies. Cynics might even suggest that this is a move to shift focus from Mexico's financial troubles. $10 billion in damages would be about 0.8% of Mexico's GDP. But even a win for Mexico won't do much to halt the sale and smuggling of arms from the US in the short term. There are other factors at play. US gun companies aren't the only ones supplying arms to Mexico. 
there have been and will continue to be other suppliers looking to fill that demand. According to NGO reports, Israeli, German and Turkish gun companies have also imported plenty of weapons into Mexico over the years. Even if these sales seem kosher on paper because they're intended for the Mexican military or police, the guns often end up in the hands of criminals due to links between authorities and cartels. And finally, international treaties like the United Nations Arms Trade Treaty are meant to regulate the illegal conventional weapons trade. But the treaty doesn't regulate arms smuggling into Mexico or address how many weapons can be legally sold in the US. So it's of little use in this situation. Absent a bilateral treaty with the US, there aren't many international laws that Mexico can rely on to stop smuggling. Simply put, no lawsuit, no matter how well argued, can solve Mexico's decades-long cycle of drugs, violence, weapons, and corruption. Actually, I take that back. If Sicario 3 turns out to be Antonio Banderas prowling a courtroom as a brooding but brilliant lawyer determined to take revenge on US gun companies, then, and only then, will the Iron River stop flowing. Oh, and by the way, Dennis Villeneuve, please slide into my DMs to hear more. And that's it for another week. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy those two stories. Let us know what you thought, as we always welcome your feedback. Otherwise, you can always get in touch with us by replying to the newsletter or following the links to the subscription in this podcast. Or tweeting us at intintrigue, that's I-N-T, intrigue. Okay, until next week.